Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture with me. Open to the book of Exodus, chapter 30. In a moment, I'll read verses 17 to the end. I'm struck by that last song that we sung Run to Jesus. You need a strong, kind Savior. Jesus is that strong and kind Savior. Run to Him. He will not disappoint. He will not leave you. He will not fail you. He is the Savior that we need. Strong and kind, truly. A mighty fortress is our God. Would you stand with me as I read? Exodus 30 this morning, beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. As we continue our study through the book of Exodus, Exodus 30, starting in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy. 
and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacte and ancha and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you and the incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Let him who has ears hear what your spirit says to this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let's consider a verse together as we begin our time. Verse, two verses from 1 Timothy 5, verses 15 and 16. They say this. He was blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. In these verses, Paul explicitly tells his companion Timothy, to labor in the work of the ministry because one day he will stand before God who dwells in unapproachable light. Let us take a moment and meditate on that truth that God dwells in unapproachable light. God lives in, abides in, remains in, and resides in a state of such greatness and awesomeness and glory that it is described as unapproachable light. Timothy, God's greatness is far greater than anything that you can imagine. And I am telling you about the bigness of God because it is necessary for you to know your smallness when you stand before him. How often do we take time to think that God dwells in unapproachable light? And how might that affect our lives? Even how we come to church. I would dare say that generally speaking, we don't think much about being, about God being in unapproachable light. In fact, maybe we would even believe the opposite. We would rather like to think of just how approachable God is. So many have painted a picture of God where he is some kind of grandfather figure who will give you a gentle bear hug and a piece of candy whenever he's around you. We don't want God to be unapproachable. We want him to be approachable. We have gone to great lengths, sometimes even to confuse and to the detriment of how people think to ensure that God is approachable. 
Some might even go so far as to believe it is their right to be able to approach God. If I want to approach God, I can approach Him and He will have to receive me. I am entitled to approach God when I want, how I want, and on my own terms. Heaven forbid that we as Christians would ever say that God dwells in unapproachable light. It might keep people away. It might make things more difficult for us. But denying that God dwells in unapproachable light has led to hurried, irreverent, irresponsible, and unholy worship. When the truth that God dwells in unapproachable light is removed, you no longer have transcendence in your worship of God. You forget about Adam and Eve hiding in the garden because they were afraid of God's presence after they had sinned against Him. You forget about God's holiness. You forget about Isaiah who experienced the holiness of God in the temple and says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And yet the whole Bible is telling of how God and man who once dwelt together in the garden how that fellowship was broken because of sin and the fall of man, but how God is working to one day make it a reality where God will say with a loud voice from His throne, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Even though we are not Finally and fully in that place yet, we are able to approach God through our worship. And He desires that we approach Him in our worship, but it is done His way and on His terms. We cannot rush our approach to God. He has told us how we are to approach Him and how we are enabled to approach Him even through His Word. And how this approach of him is rooted and founded in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but how? But through me. But by me. You want to come to God? You want to approach the God who dwells in unapproachable light? You have to come to him through me. There is no other way. There is no other path. There is one path to God, and it is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our strong and gentle and kind Messiah. We see these truths that we must approach God in his way, even in the construction of the tabernacle. We have been reminded in this chapter of the need of atonement, in being able to approach God, payment made for their lives before Yahweh so they could be at one with Him, so they could approach Him. But now we're given three other requirements for being able to approach God in the worship of the tabernacle. And these requirements, while not in this way, they are still necessary for our lives. So these verses reflect a greater truth and a greater reality of what it is to approach God and what's necessary in order for us to be able to approach God.
What does approaching God require? We know it requires atonement, but three more things this morning. You can follow along in your bulletin if you find that helpful. Number one, approaching God requires cleansing. Approaching God requires cleansing. Here is the picture. Between the bronze altar where the priests were to make sacrifices to God and between the tent of meeting, there was another furnishing. It was a bronze basin that was set on a bronze stand. And we are specifically told what the purpose of the basin is. It's for washing. Before the priests could offer sacrifices on the altar, or before they entered the tent of meeting, they were to wash. We might think of them washing after they go to the altar. Here they are at the altar. They're sacrificing animals. They're bloody. Now they go to the basin to wash off the blood. But no, in fact, they wash before they go to the altar, and they wash before they enter the tent. The basin wasn't so the priests could take a bath. They were to wash their hands and their feet. But what was the point of the priests washing in this way? Was God instructing the Israelites before the discovery of germs and bacteria so as to protect them from disease? No, this is an outward ritual to represent the spiritual cleansing that they needed to be able to approach God. And the priests weren't washing to protect themselves from germs. They were washing so that they would be protected from God. If you don't do this, priests, you will die. The washing was not an option. It was not a suggestion. It was not a good idea to promote health. It was necessary for their service before the Lord. They had to be clean in order to approach God, who is completely pure. He is clean, never to be defiled. In fact, Isaiah 52, 11 says this, Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Priests, washing their hands and their feet to be a constant reminder of their needed cleansing as a requirement for approaching God and being able to offer acceptable worship to Him. It is a demonstration that everyone needs washing. Everyone needs to be cleansed because our sin has defiled us. Our sin has made us unclean. We are impure people because of our sins. So we need washing, cleansing, removal of the stain of sin in order to be able to approach God as well. And this cleansing is the cleansing that Jesus provides through his death and through his resurrection. So let's look at a few other verses. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy 
and without blemish. What did the church need? The church needed to be cleansed and washed. Or turn over a few more pages to the book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What is it that you needed? You need to be washed by the regeneration, being made new by the Holy Spirit. Or how about Hebrews 10, verse 22? It says this, let us draw near, here it is, approaching God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with what? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How is anyone ever able to be cleansed and washed in this way? It's only by the blood of of Jesus Christ. That's what 1 John 1.7 says. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. As we think about cleansing, I think it's appropriate for us to remember the event where Jesus laid aside his outer garments, where he took a towel and tied it around his waist, where he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. The king of glory takes the dirty smelly feet of his disciples and carefully, tenderly, lovingly washes them. And Peter wants to refuse the Lord. You shall never wash my feet. That's not your job, Jesus. You shouldn't be doing this. You are above this. Washing feet is not what the Christ, the Messiah, is supposed to do. Jesus, you will not wash my feet. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, this is exactly what I came to do. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus came to cleanse people from their sins. To refuse his washing is to refuse Jesus. It is to refuse his sacrifice. It is to refuse the great high priest who knew no sin, who was perfectly clean, who had no need to be washed because there was no sin in him, yet who died for the sake of sinners so that they might be cleansed. And as I thought about Peter's interaction with Jesus there, as Jesus was going around to his disciples and washing their feet, I thought of a few categories that came to my mind about this idea of how people might relate to cleansing. 
some might not be cleansed and you know you're not cleansed. You're not cleansed and you know it. You know you're not cleansed. You know that the stain of sin is still on you. There is a burden there. A burden that you carry each and every day. A burden because you are dominated and enslaved to your sin. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to make you clean. Jesus came to remove that burden from your back. Jesus came to forgive you of your sins. If you would put your faith and trust in him, believe that he died on the cross for your sins, believe that he rose again from the dead, believe that there is no other way to God but through him, you will be saved. He will cleanse you. And maybe you would think, no way. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad I've sinned. You don't know the awful things in my life. That's the beauty of it. Jesus came not to call the righteous. Jesus came not to save the righteous. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save the dirty But there's another category. The other category is those who are cleansed, that is to say you are a believer, but you know that you need cleansing. You are cleansed, that means you are a believer, but you still have this burden that you know you need cleansing. In fact, I think this is what goes on in Peter's life. He is there before Jesus, and he says to Jesus, well, Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. This exchange, I believe, is representative of the life of the believer. As a Christian, you have been cleansed but you realize that you still need cleansing. That's why Peter says, give me a bath, Jesus. But Jesus says to him, remember, Peter, you are already clean. The only thing that you need cleaned now is your feet. This is the soft conscience of a true believer. You are burdened by your sin. You see how it makes you unclean and vile, and you think the only way to get rid of it is a complete bath because it weighs so heavy on your heart. But Jesus comes, and he offers a corrective to us. He says, you have been completely cleansed. Your sin has been forgiven. You need to remember how you are cleansed in Christ, and then you can come with confidence and have your feet washed because we still sin but we can come in confidence and confess our sin to him because as 1 John 1 9 says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness
But after 1 John 1, 9, right on the heels of this verse, we're given a third category, those who might deceive themselves into thinking that they do not need any cleansing. It goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This one does not have any part in Christ because Christ came to cleanse those who are in need of cleansing. If you are here today and would say you are not in need of cleansing, I would dare say that you are the one who is in need of cleansing the most. The Christian does not say, I need no cleansing. We will never get to that point this side of heaven. Such a statement makes a mockery of Christ's love, a mockery of his sacrifice, a mockery of the work of the Spirit who sanctifies us through the Word. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You're not complete yet. You're not there yet. You're not perfect yet. Do not be deceived. See yourself in the light of God's Word. See yourself in the light of Christ. See yourself who is in need of cleansing, and come to Christ. He will wash you, He will purify you, He will cleanse you so that you can approach God. What place do you have to get to to say, I could never do that? The believer says, I realize I could do that, And if there's any way that I'm not doing that, it's only by the grace of God. Approaching God requires cleansing. But second, approaching God also requires anointing. Approaching God requires anointing. The next instruction of Yahweh to Moses is to have oil made for the tabernacle. The oil is costly. We see all of those ingredients. I'm not going to go into all of those ingredients. but just to say that it was costly. And it was used, this oil was used to anoint the furnishings of the tabernacle and also to anoint the priests. So verses 26 through 28 tells us of the furnishings that were to be anointed. And whatever is anointed is then consecrated for God. That is, it is set apart for Yahweh, solely and completely dedicated to Him. These items are made holy through their anointing. But then... Verse 30 shifts to the anointing oil used to anoint Aaron and his sons. These people now are to be consecrated. That is, these people are to be set apart, completely devoted to serving the Lord in the tabernacle. Whatever is anointed is considered holy. The anointing oil is to be used in only particular and special circumstances. Notice it's not to be mimicked or imitated. It's not to be misused. It's not to be put on an outsider, someone who is not a priest. And there are consequences if it's misused. If you misuse this anointing oil, you're to be cut off from the people of God. Seeking to use this anointing oil for one's own purposes was a rejection of the Lord's instruction, a rejection of the Lord's authority. And so that person would lose all the benefits 
of being in the covenant people of God. When we get to the New Testament, we learn Jesus is the fulfillment of these anointed ones. He is the final anointed one to whom all of these anointed ones point. Messiah or Christ means anointed one. So look at what Jesus says in Luke 4. He's preaching in the synagogue. And Luke 4 says this, verses 18 through 20. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice here, Jesus is saying this, these verses from the prophet Isaiah were speaking about Him. He is the anointed one. And as the anointed one, he is the one who is bringing salvation for his people. He's releasing the captives. He's making blind people see. He's releasing the oppressed so they can proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus is the anointed one, but also it also proceeds from him now that all true believers in Jesus are also anointed ones by the Holy Spirit. So 1 John, again, 1 John, if you go there for a moment. 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and then 27. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge then 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but this anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. And so Jesus, as the anointed one, also anoints his followers, those anointed with the Holy Spirit. And anointed ones no longer function as ordinary objects or as private persons, now they must be used and act with reference to God and His purposes. Is that how you would describe your life? If we are God's anointed people. You can no longer live as an ordinary person, or as a private person. You must live your life and act in reference to God and to His purposes. It flies in the face of what so many people want and what so many people long for. I am my own person. I can do what I want to do. I am the final authority. I have final say. I will just keep to myself. I'm a private person. Not if you're a Christian, you're not. If you're a Christian, you are Christ. You belong to Him. And now you must live and act in reference to God 
in everything you do and everything you say and everything you think and everything you choose. You are to be used for his purposes and not your own. In fact, that is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Dear brother and sister, what precious price have you been bought with? The very precious blood of Jesus Christ. And being bought with such a price means you are not your own. You cannot live for yourself. Everything that we do must be done in reference to Him and for His purposes. Finally, number three, approaching God requires His delight. Approaching God requires His delight. Friday morning, I got up, I pulled out my sermon notes, I started to scribble on them, and my wife says to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm changing my third point. <laughs> I was changing it because as I thought about it, do we think much of God as a delighting God? Do you think of God as a God who delights? This last section in Exodus 30, so verses 34 through 38, serve what I would call a zone of turbulence. Have you ever flown before in an airplane you know turbulence, those times when you hit the, I don't know what they are, pockets of air. The whole plane shakes a little bit. You've hit a zone of turbulence. It's not just smooth sailing. We get to this point in Exodus 30 here. There's this zone of turbulence. It's meant to shake us up a little bit. It's meant to get our attention. And the attention it's supposed to draw to our minds is that when we've looked at these other two things, God requires cleansing, God requires anointing, those are focused on our benefit. It's to our benefit that we are cleansed. It's to our benefit that we are anointed. But now, approaching God requires His delight. It puts the focus back on God. And I, and I get this from verse 37, and the incense that you make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves, but it shall be holy for you to the Lord. This is not for yourselves. This is to be made for the Lord. It's for His delight. It's about what pleases Him. It's about what delights Him, not what first delights you. God is a God who delights in the prayers of the upright, Proverbs 15, 8. He delights in the pure worship of his people. Do we desire God's delight to be upon us? Or are we ever so focused on 
our own delight, what delights me? Are we prone to rob God of his delight and delight ourselves and elevate our own delight at the expense of God's delight? Do we concern ourselves with what God delights in, with what pleases him? Do we even consider that our God is a God who delights? Or do we fall into the category of thinking that God only derides God only shakes his finger at us. I remember working with a man one time. We were pushing large crates of equipment, and he got his finger pinched between two large crates. And he said to me, that's God getting me. Is that how you view God, that God is out to get you? God is out to give you his grace. God is out to delight in you, and he can delight in you because he has first found great delight in his own son who died upon the cross. So approaching God requires his delight. He must delight. He must be delighting in us, in our worship, in his son, He must delight in his own glory. He must delight in the grace that he's given to us. God must be a delighting God if we're going to be able to approach him. And let us not think that somehow we need to delight ourselves. Notice this incense that was to be made. Incense that was used to be, or was supposed to be used to represent the prayers of the people of God, it was not an incense that they were to put on themselves as a perfume. I don't wear much perfume. Some people do. Why do you wear perfume? And this isn't, this isn't to condemn perfume wearing. But there's something when you wear perfume that someone else smells it and they say, you smell good. I think that's the reason why you wear it. I don't know why else you would wear it. You smell good. You want other people to delight in you. You want that smell to be something that's attractive, that's not (laughs) off-putting. God says to his people here, this fragrance that you are to burn, that is to be offered up as incense, is supposed to come to me, and I'm supposed to, in a sense, smell that incense and delight in it. Don't use that on yourself. Don't rob me of my delight for your own selfish gain. Don't think about what you get out of it or how others might delight in you. Let me have my rightful delight. Is God having his rightful delight in your life? Is God having his rightful delight in the prayers that you pray to him? Is God having his rightful delight in the worship that you would offer to him? May God find great delight 
in us. Not because we are, are in and of ourselves or anything, but because when he sees us, he sees his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for teaching us how we might approach you. May we delight, or may you delight in our worship today. May you delight your word, how you're using your word to shape us and mold us and form us. Father, we need cleansing. There's someone here today who has never been cleansed, who does not know the full forgiveness from Jesus. May today be the day when they put their faith and trust in him. When they know the cleansing power of the precious blood of Jesus that washes away all of our sin. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the way that you have made for us to be able to approach you. The God who dwells in unapproachable light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.